morning. How is everybody? It is good to be back. I'm so thankful uh, that uh, we've got people like Luke Boyteen who can fill in and uh, allow uh, my wife and I to have a little vacation so that it's nice for that. But it's um, kind of a, a, a thing with me is that even though I'm away, I can't wait to get back and, and be back here uh, just teaching what I believe God has laid on my heart. Uh, about this time, uh, in this uh, calendar, uh, the beginning of the year, I was praying through what God would have me to preach through this year, and about this time, we were already in another sermon series, and so the series that we've been going through, The Fight for Your Life, is kind of, uh, as I've been studying it and, and digging in and even seeing what God's been doing in my own life through uh, unpacking the spiritual warfare and, and what that really means for us as Christians, God has really kind of been having me focus on some things that I think I can't get past without presenting it to you all. I think there are some things God wants us to know as a church, as Christians, that we sometimes forget or maybe we haven't even thought about before. And uh, so we're going to be talking about something today that I think is probably one of the most vital things in the life of a Christian. Even if you've been in church for a very long time, maybe you've grown up in church, your parents had you in church, you've just been around for a long time. I think sometimes we can hear you know, certain uh, stories, messages, read verses, and after a while, it just kind of loses that impact. And I think it's good to be reminded of some things, but more importantly, I think God has an abundant life and an incredible plan prepared for us, and when we become apathetic to his word and we allow our faith to begin to wane, we can miss out on some of the things that God has in store for us. And I believe that uh, as Vertical Life Church, God in Intends to use us in a very powerful way. I believe God intends for everyone here to be used in a very powerful way, to impact the lives of their loved ones and the people that they have in their life and in their friends, their family, their co-workers. And, and so I, I believe as we take a look at the spiritual fight that we're in and how we're wrestling with these spiritual powers, that it's important that we not only know how the enemy works and operates so we can see his work in the the world, but also how we as believers break free from that and live and continue to live a victorious life. 
And so today and uh, for the next two weeks, we're going to be finishing this series, and I believe this is going to really be the kind of the catalyst for what God wants to begin cultivating within our church, within our lives, and uh, to begin using us in the way that He has planned. In 2007, my wife and I were in arguably the most intense and worst ice storm we have ever been in. Now, I know we get snow and things up here. There have been some pretty bad snows here, uh, some pretty bad ice storms. But even though we've been here since 2010 and we've, you know, experienced Michigan winters, in Missouri in 2007, we were in one of probably the worst storms that we've ever been in. Uh, It was, you know, a cool day, but it wasn't super cold. But it had been raining all day long. Excuse me. And meteorologists that day warned of freezing temperatures at night and that the rain would begin to freeze. And as night fell and the temperatures dropped, the rain didn't let up. It was storming. It was pouring down all day long. And then when the sun went down, it got so cold that the rain turned to sleet. Everything that was wet froze, and it began, literally, you could watch crystals crystallize and icicles begin to form on all the power lines and trees. Everything looked like glass. And and I don't remember what time at night it was, but all of a sudden the power went out. And we started hearing these loud cracks and booms and explosions and things. And so our car alarms are going off and flashes of light out the window and these loud bangs hitting the house. And, you know, I don't know what it is about people, but like when the tornado comes, you're supposed to duck for cover. I don't know why some people go outside and you go to look at it. That's like me. I want to see, you know. So I open the door and I go outside and it's, it's barely, it's dimly lit. You could barely see anything. Luckily, the moon was shining a little bit. You could kind of see. But, I mean, it looked like a war zone. Ice and everything was coming down. Big oak trees. We lived kind of in an old part of town. And so all these giant overgrown oak and maple trees were breaking. Their huge limbs were crashing. I saw one limb take down the power lines and the transformer blew up. Uh, you know, this giant limb had hit the back of our house. Uh, cars were being bombarded. I mean, it was insane. What was going on? It was like a war zone. It sounded like I was on a battlefield. And uh, the power had been knocked out to most of the state. Matter of fact, we were out of power for about two weeks. And uh, at this time, Jocelyn, our oldest, was barely uh, eight months old. And uh, that two weeks, my wife and I had to leave our home. And we crashed at our sister-in-law's apartment, who lived a couple miles away. And for some reason, she was a, had power. So lucky for us, we had a warm place to stay. But uh, we had two dogs at home, and since we couldn't bring the dogs to the apartment, we had to leave them there at our house, and we had to check on them daily to make sure they weren't getting too cold, and that was a challenge, roughing it for that period of time. But the thing about this, this storm and this period of our lives that really just kind of was brought out to me this week as I've been studying this, this topic of spiritual warfare and this topic of fighting the fight of your life is that even though we had a home, we had a place where we lived, the mail went to our address, the home was no use to us without any power. It was no use. It was too cold to live in. If we had tried to stay there, there was no way to heat our house. Temperatures were in the single digits. We would have frozen to death, probably, because we had no way to heat our home. There's no electricity. We didn't have a fireplace or anything like that. We could not stay there. Aside from being a storage unit, that building had little to no value for us because it couldn't function in the way that it was intended. And you know, the same is true for our faith. 
The same is true for our faith. You know, maybe you're here today and you would affirm with your whole heart that you believe you have faith. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died, he rose again. You've even declared him as your Lord and Savior. You have made that confession. You've told people, I am a Christian. I believe Jesus is the Lord of my life. You would affirm those things to be true. But yet when it comes to living the life Jesus has called us to live, agreeing with that truth and living it out can be two totally separate things. Believing it and living it are two totally separate things. And the problem with just agreeing with the Bible and not living it out, James, in his book, in James chapter 1, verse 22, here's what James says. He says, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says, otherwise you're only what? Fooling yourself. Don't just listen, but do it, or you are fooling yourself. There is a difference, church, between saying you believe something and living as if you believe it. Just as there's a difference between telling your spouse you love them and showing them you love them. I mean, think about it. Those of you that are married or even though those of you that may be dating someone or in a relationship, imagine if your significant other only told you they loved you but never did anything to show it or to prove it. Even in a marriage relationship, if all you do is what your duty requires, just the basic necessity, husbands, you go to work, you know, you bring home a paycheck, wives, you clean the house. If all you did was just the basic and you never did anything above that with intentionality or sacrifice to show love, chances are, and it's a highly likelihood, that your spouse would go on feeling unloved. You know, and the same is true for our faith. For faith to be genuine and powerful, it takes intentionality and it takes sacrifice. James, in James chapter 2, verse 26, he says, Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. And what good works is he talking about? What good works is James talking about? He's talking about the works that are produced in the life of a person who is filled with the very presence of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul to the church of Ephesus says, We are God's masterpiece. We are created anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I mean, you got to think about this and really wrestle with this idea that before God spoke everything into existence. The last four weeks, uh, uh, Pastor Luke has been talking to us about creation, how God is the originator of all things, how he spoke everything to existence, how we can see even through the natural world evidence that what our faith declares is true. Right? So God who spoke everything into existence before the very foundation of the world, he looked into the future. He saw you. He saw you. He saw you. He saw you. Everyone who would call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And he said, I've got a purpose, a plan, a mission, and I've got some works for you to do. This has been his plan all along. All through this series, from the beginning till now, We've been discussing what Jesus said would be true of his followers. He said that of those that believe on his name will do the same works that he did and even greater because he goes to the Father. 
In Mark 16, just before Jesus ascends to heaven, he says, these are the signs that will follow those that believe. They will cast out devils. They will speak with other tongues. They will lay hands on the sick and they'll be healed. They'll do all sorts of signs and marvelous things. And so we see what the word of God says. We see how he talks about us prophesying the deep and secret things of God. And yet we look at our experience and we wonder, why don't we see those things at work in our lives? If these are the works that God intends for us to do, why don't we see this at work in our lives? And I believe that unless a person is filled with the presence of God, and it's dominated by the reality that God is not only with them, but they allow that reality to shape their identity, their desires, their perspective. They will go on living according to their flesh and not their faith. This is what in Christianity we call the carnal life. A person who lives carnally rather than spiritually will see little to no evidence of the faith they say they possess. You see, faith, when you live the carnal life, will be a self-esteem booster, not a life changer. And Paul, as he's addressing the church of Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, here's what he says to this group of Christians. He says, dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk and not with solid food because you weren't ready for anything stronger and you still aren't ready for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another. You quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove that you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living just like the people of the world? Paul is speaking to a church that he founded, a group of Christians, a group of believers. They confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior. They showed up to Sunday school. They showed up to worship services. They've been baptized. They've been doing all the same things that we do. And yet here Paul says, you are living according to your flesh. What Paul is revealing to us through this letter to the Corinthians is that he's revealing to us that even though we may profess that we are believers in Christ, Jesus still may not be the Lord of our lives. That our attitudes, our behaviors, our preferences, our priorities, our interactions with one another reveal who really is or what really is in control. And for many of us, our lives reveal that we live under the influence of our flesh, even our sinful nature, week after week after week, and don't even realize it. This is why many of us also don't see the hand of God at work in our lives like we would like to, why we continue to press against the same issues, the same strongholds, and we find ourselves wrestling with demonic spirits only to end up losing the battle, being stuck in bondage rather than walking in victory. When God, our King, has so much more planned for our lives, His plans are for good and not disaster. His ways provide us a path to an abundant life. See, our faith tends to be like a house with no power. It exists, but it's useless or profits us nothing. In John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus is addressing his disciples, and he says, Yes, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. See, in this Christian life, Jesus is the source. Somebody say the source. 
Jesus is the source. He is the source of the resource we need to produce the fruit that he intends for us to grow. He is the source of the resource of the power we need to do the works that he planned for us long ago. He is the power source and we are the conduit. If you think about uh, your house and getting electricity from one point to another, you know, hooking up maybe a, a new light fixture or, or, or a ceiling fan or something, you have to find the source, which is the power box, and you have to find a way to run power from that box to the place that you are going in order to hook up that new fixture. Right? So you find, you get some conduit, you get some wire, you get something that can take power from the box and run it to the place that you're needing to have the power uh, be used. And here Jesus is saying that he is the source, and yet we are the conduit. We are what he intends for his power to flow through so that power can get to the point that he needs to do a miraculous work, where he needs to change hearts and lives. But the thing about a conduit is that if a conduit is not connected to the source, it is merely refuse taking up space. It's garbage. It's, no, it's useless. Jesus said we must remain in him. That means it's a choice. We must remain in him. That's a choice. That's a decision. That's a commitment. That is a passionate pursuit, and it doesn't just happen by accident or without effort. Unless we are connected to the source of power that produces good works, we won't accomplish much because we can't accomplish much. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And Jesus told us something very important before he was crucified. He was tell, he talking to his disciples up until his crucifixion. Uh, just before his, his death, he's get, having this conversation. And, uh, and if you know anything about the life of Christ, his whole ministry was going around and he was freeing those who were oppressed by the devil. He was healing the sick. He was feeding the hungry. He, he was uh, changing hearts and lives with the very power of God. He was showing his disciples what it was to work toward ushering in the kingdom of God and preaching the truth in love. He was taking ground back that was surrendered to the enemy. It was his whole purpose for coming. And just before his death in John chapter 16, he says this to his disciples. He says, but now I'm going away to the one who sent me. And not one of you is asking where I'm going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it's best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. And if I do go away, then I will send him to you. See, the, the disciples, if you just put yourself in their place for a second, they were in constant awe and in wonder watching the things that Jesus was doing. From the time he called them, they marveled time and time again at his power and his authority. I think of the times that he fed the 5,000, which is the sack lunch. The times he raised the dead and he called Lazarus out of the tomb after he'd been dead for three days. Or the time they were on the boat and they were in the midst of a storm getting ready to die uh, uh, from the thrashing of the waves. And they see Jesus walking on the water. He hops in the boat and he speaks to the storm and says, peace, be still. And the disciples marvel and they say, who is this man who has such authority that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is he? And here Jesus is speaking and he's saying, guys, I'm not going to be with you much longer. I can feel the dread in the disciples' hearts that overwhelmed them. 
to go from being in the very presence of Almighty God, to go from being next to the one and speaking to the one and sleeping next to the one each night, who literally carved the oceans with his hand, to go from being in his presence to not having him around any longer would be very difficult. I can see why David prayed in the Psalms, don't take your spirit from me. Because to be separated from God after knowing him so intimately would be devastating. But Jesus said, I need to go. I have to go. And he said something very powerful, but even though it's powerful, it's still a little confusing. In verse 7, he says, but in fact, it's best for you that I go away. It is best for you that I go away. Now, couple of things here. First of all, what could be better than God himself dwelling among the men? What could be better than that? Than walking and talking and sleeping in the same space as the creator of the universe. I can't think about what could be much better than that. But here God is saying through Christ, he's telling his disciples, look guys, you've got something going here. You have a relationship with me. You believe in me, but you're missing the special sauce. You're missing this ingredient that, that I have to give you. And it's better that I go because if I don't, you won't get this missing ingredient that I need you to have. You're going to miss this thing that I'm preparing for you. In verse 7, he says, in fact, it's best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. The advocate is another name for the Holy Spirit. What's important to understand about what Jesus is saying here is found in a couple chapters earlier in John chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus replied, he said, all who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. So Jesus is telling his disciples in John 16 about the advocate coming. He's just reaffirming what he said in, in John chapter 14, that the very presence of God that was contained in Christ will now be among his people permanently. Jesus was getting ready to go. That wasn't so permanent. But the presence of God, the Father, the Son, through his Spirit, will now come permanently and be among the people. But Paul the Apostle takes it a step further, kind of unpacks what this means for us as followers of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, here's what Paul says. He says, he has identified us as his own, by placing the Holy Spirit in our, what's that word? The Holy Spirit in our hearts. That's another term or word for soul, mind, your innermost being. So Jesus is revealing to his disciples that it's better that I go because if I don't, I can't send the advocate. I can't send you the Holy Spirit, not just for God to dwell among you permanently, but for him to make his home in your very own heart. See, prior to the Lord, Jesus coming at Christmas, God's presence was relegated to be found really in only one of two places. The tabernacle, which was a tent that the Israelites carried around with them from place to place until they found their permanent home in Jerusalem and they built the temple. Those were the only two places that the presence of God was found until Christ came. It was fully God and fully man in one human being. So here Jesus is saying that now through the Spirit of God, God will be found within the very souls of his children. 
You don't have to go to a temple or to a tent. You don't have to find a rabbi wandering the streets of Jerusalem. God is in your heart. How awesome is that? To know that the very God who created you lives in you. So the question becomes now that why is that better? Why is that better than just being around Jesus? I mean, Jesus walks on water, and you can ask Peter, hang out with him long enough, and you can walk on water too, right? No one seems to go hungry around Christ because when people start getting hungry, he just splits some fish and bread together and makes a meal, right? He even refills the wine when it runs out at the party. Being around Jesus is awesome. So why is it better? The first thing I think is because Jesus is limited in his physical form. He is fully God, but even as fully God, he limited himself to be the form of a human, the form of a servant. He cannot be in Christ what he wants to be to everyone every second of every day. It was, read the Gospels. It says there are many times Jesus would separate himself to go alone, go get alone to be with the Father so that he could be filled with the Spirit of God. He couldn't be to every, what everyone needed every second of every day because he limited himself in the form of Christ. Jesus may have been around, but he wasn't completely available all of the time. So the Spirit of God coming makes God available to every person every second of the day. There's nothing now that can separate you from God. If you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, His Spirit lives in you. You are with God, never to be separated ever or ever or ever again. That's powerful. But the second reason goes beyond having God as a companion. And Jesus reveals it to us in Acts, after Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is what the Lord says to his disciples. He says, but you will receive, what's that word? What's that word? Say it again. Power. But you will receive power when what? The Holy Spirit comes upon you. That word for power in the Greek is the word dunamis. That's where we get dynamite or dynamic. It's power. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. What do the miners use to break holes into the mountains to clear away for the roads? They use dynamite, right? They use explosives. They use power. And here Christ is saying, when the Spirit of God comes on you, you're going to receive power. And power to do what? To be my witnesses. The gospel is going to explode across the world. You're going to tell people about me everywhere in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When the Spirit of God comes upon you, the lights in the home are going to come on. The furnace is going to begin to heat. Flames are going to warm the house. Everything that's been frozen over is going to begin to melt. Your spirit's going to come alive. Your branch is going to get connected to the vine. Your conduit's going to get connected to the source. And you're going to have the power of God flow through you, producing life-changing, life saving works that are fruit meat for the master's use power more than just the salvation of your soul bringing your dead spirit to life something in you happens your purpose changes 
You're not just going to receive power to do what you want. You're going to receive power to be my witnesses. The power you receive changes your purpose from being a wanderer to being a witness. There's a difference between a wanderer and a witness. A wanderer, the definition of wanderer is to think or speculate curiously. Wanderers are curious about a subject. They're interested. They have intrigue. They speculate. They imagine. They meditate. They know a lot about a subject, but they have little to no experience. A witness is something a little different. A witness, by definition, means to see an event, typically a crime or an accident, take place. Or to give or serve as evidence of, to testify to, the event that has taken place. A wanderer thinks a lot about a subject, knows a lot about a subject. A witness knows and has experience and stands as evidence of the subject. There's a difference. And Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. You will not only see the power and the presence of God at work in your life, but God is going to use you to stand as the evidence that the kingdom of God has come. You. There's a difference between a wanderer and a witness. And as I've been going through this study as I've been challenged with what God is even revealing in my own life, I came upon this verse that rocked me to the core. And it confirmed and solidified some things that I knew God was dealing with me in my old life. My, really, my whole outlook on the Christian life changed. My whole understanding of what it was to be a Christian changed. And what we're supposed to be doing as a church changed. And it's a very simple verse, but it means monumental meaning. Paul said to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20, the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. Read this with me. It is living by God's power. The kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It is living by God's power. God knew when I was a young child that he was going to call me into the ministry. It took me almost 30 years to agree with him. Still kind of the jury's out sometimes. But God gave me a certain personality, and now Satan and my sinful flesh kind of twisted that. Instead of being bold in the faith, I became bold and arrogant and prideful and argumentative. And I was always right. And I grew up in church. My parents were in ministry. I had been to church just about every week of my life. Went to Bible college even. I've been to Sunday school. I know all the stories. I've heard all the famous verses. I can tell you the books of the Bible. What every Christian is supposed to be able to do. And even in Bible college, studying the Word of God. Feeling like I had everything under control. But I had this argumentative personality, and I spent most of my energy and most of my time 
Not sharing the gospel with those far from God and needing in need of a life-saving encounter with Jesus Christ. I spent most of my time arguing with other Christians, correcting their false beliefs. No, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible means. Your church is wrong. You're going to go to hell because you don't have right faith. You need to come over and, and, and be part of this way of thinking. I spent the majority of my time trying to convert Christians than trying to love people who are far from God. I had all the words down. I had the clothes. I had knew all the songs. Well, most of them. It's that second verse of the hymns that's always elusive. You know what I'm talking about. I had everything down. I had all the arguments. I knew all the doctrine. I knew why you believed what you believed and how to dismantle your belief and make you doubt that so you'd agree with me. I knew it. But did any of that keep me from sin? Did any of that bring the hidden things in my life to light so that God could use me in a powerful way? No. I stayed comfortable, I stayed prideful, and I looked down on other people that didn't fit my standard. And God had to break me of that. I'd recommend not going through that, by the way. But here Paul says so eloquently, so simply, that the kingdom of God is not a lot of talk. It's living by God's power. The kingdom of God is not filled with what I was, which was a wanderer, a professional wanderer, a professional studier of the scripture. But here Paul says the kingdom of God is not filled with wanderers. Read Matthew chapter 7. Jesus even says in the day of judgment, many there will be that say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these wonderful things in your name? And he said, depart from me. I don't know who you are. You can know a lot about God and still not know God. The kingdom of God is not filled with wanderers. It is filled with witnesses. So ask yourself this question. Do you more times than not experience the power and presence of God in your life? Or do you spend more time talking about what it might be like? Maybe you're here today and you would say, you know, Pastor Joey, I know a lot about the Bible. But I really haven't experienced the presence of God in my life. I haven't seen him use me as a conduit of his power. I believe Jesus is the son of God. But I haven't seen God use me as the evidence to that truth. The truth is I really don't feel that powerful. The knowledge I have is not really any different than a secular historian. It's lots of good facts but makes no little, really little change in my life. I know God can use me but not sure God will use me that way. You know, I've felt that way before. I've struggled through that. I've been the one serving God on staff at a church and not really sure what God's voice sounds like and just desperate to know what he wanted for my life. I've been the one desperate to experience a miracle that can only be explained by God and yet seem to fall short time and time again of any true experience. And because of that, I doubted a lot of the information I thought was true. That's because I was taught wrong for most of my life. The truth is, church, the word of God says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
All who believe Jesus died and rose again will be saved. All who confess him as their Lord and Savior will be saved. But yet there are many of us that walk through this life feeling powerless to overcome our own sins, our own struggles, and the spiritual battles we face each and every day. And for me, I know this to be true. I believe this is the case because many of us have relied on Bible knowledge and church attendance to provide a sense of comfort as a wanderer when what we really need to do is get on our knees and surrender our comfort and pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit and begin living as God's witnesses. To stop playing around and start living for a purpose. Ephesians chapter five, verse 18, Paul to the church of Ephesus says, don't be drunk with wine because it will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is a choice, just like remaining in Christ is a choice. They are one and the same thing. There's a difference between the Spirit living in you and the Spirit filling you. Filling, being filled with the Spirit is a choice, one in which it requires the individual to proactively seek his presence. Paul tells another church in Galatia, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. He's saying to this church that if we walk in God's Spirit, we'll have the power to overcome our sinful desires. We'll have the power to break free from strongholds and bondages and overcome the temptation and influence of the enemy in our life. If we walk in His Spirit. So what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in the Spirit of God? Well, that phrase, walk in the Spirit, literally is translated, be occupied with. So we could say it like this, be occupied with the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. How can you be interested in sin when you're occupied with the Holy Spirit? See, how many of us live every day occupied with the Spirit of God? We understand He's with us, but how many of us actually listen to Him, obey Him, talk with Him, and then let Him speak through us as we minister to others? Versus how many of us just try to live in control of our own lives, only to engage with God when we have our own personal time with Him each day, if we take that time at all? See, the Holy Spirit is really popular on Sundays. He's in our prayers and he's in our songs. But what about Monday? What about Tuesday? What about Wednesday? We may have him in our hearts, but because we're more occupied with the things of this world than with his presence, his plan, and his will, we open ourselves up to attack and compromise, giving strength to the plans of the enemy. See, again, the temple in Jerusalem was the place that housed the manifest presence of God. And if you know about the temple, there were three courts in the temple. There's the holy place called the Holy of Holies where God's presence resided. It's where God would descend in the temple and he would engulf in flames the, the sacrifice laid there on the mercy seat on the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. But the other two courts, there was the inner courts and the outer courts. The inner courts is where the priests prepared the sacrifices and the outer courts are where the people uh, stayed and worshiped. And as Jesus, just before his crucifixion, on, uh, as he rides the donkey into town, into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple and he sees something happening in the outer courts. He sees the money changers and tax collectors and people selling sacrifices. And he gets so angry within himself that he creates a whip and he drives the money changers out of the temple. Drives them clear out. And he makes a statement. He says, my house shall be known as a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. 
The temple of God is the place where people commune with his presence, not entertain wickedness. And this is a picture for us today. Paul tells us in the New Testament that now through Christ, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've been purchased by his blood. The Holy Spirit now lives within us. And if we don't stay focused and remain occupied in the Spirit, we will eventually, like Israel, make concessions that allow things to come in and defile us. We'll allow spirits to move in and bring bondage, strongholds, sin, and eventually bring the anger of God against this temple, not the blessings of God. God's desire for us is to not be bogged down or entangled, or defiled by evil. He doesn't want any of the members of our body used as instruments to serve Satan. He desires us to be cleansed by the washing of his word without spot or wrinkle, to be presented as a glorious church through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we would be holy as he is holy. He desires us to be his witnesses, living through his power and testifying about his kingdom. He desires us to be demonstrators of that truth by working through us to perform miracles by nature of the spiritual gifts he gives us in the Holy Spirit. He desires the church to march against the kingdom of Satan, to overthrow it in this fight for our lives. And he's promised that as the church is on the move, the gates of hell will not prevail against the power of the church. And it's not that we are powerful, but it's that God in us is powerful. 1 John 4, 4 says, but you belong to God, my dear children. You've already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. The God in us is greater than the God of this world. The strong man Jesus referred to has been bound by one who is stronger and his name is Christ Jesus. The spirit of God testifies of the son and the son glorifies the father, bringing the glory of God full circle within his people. As Jesus ascended to heaven, he ascended to heaven not so that we could be shy and afraid or to have faithless belief that our God can and will work through us. Now Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, of love, and self-discipline. Other translations say a sound mind. Jesus left so that we could become powerful together as the church by living in and being occupied with the presence of his Holy Spirit. And the reason we can have confidence that victory is ours against the kingdom of darkness, against Satan, through the Holy Spirit, as we walk in the Spirit, as we commune in the Spirit, and as a church together, as we minister in the Spirit as the children of God, and we walk in Christ's authority as we cast out spirits and we lay hands on bodies to be healed, is because of what Christ told his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 10. In John 16, verse 10, he says, Righteousness is available because I go to the Father. You will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. The ruler of this world, the God of this world has already been judged. Who's the ruler of this world? Satan. What did Jesus say was his status? He's judged. He may not be bound 
but he's been stripped of his authority. Through the resurrection of Christ and the death that he so freely gave, the keys of the kingdom have been given to the church, and victory is assured through our faith in his son. And that faith isn't an intellectual faith only, but a faith that you can truly experience as you are filled up with and walk in the power of the Spirit of God. You can know the love of God, the love of the God of the universe intimately, and you can see how he uses you to be his witnesses in the world, to do exceedingly and abundantly more than what you could possibly ask or think. And I believe today that I know it's true in my own life that if your faith experience has been more intellectual than experiential, if you've been more of a wanderer than a witness, that today God is inviting you to take a step of faith in your life, to open your heart and mind and to surrender your life to him, to take a step away from fear, the fear of obedience and from the bondage to sin and our sinful nature and to move toward an exciting expectation of what God wants to do and is going to do through you as you're baptized in his Holy Spirit. Ask yourself these questions today. Do I want to know God more? Do I want more of God in my life? Do I want more of his presence? Do I want to see him use me more? Do I want to follow him more? Am I hungry for God in my life? And am I willing to surrender to his will? Am I willing to surrender to do his will? Surrender is a hard word. That means giving up what I want for what he wants. Am I willing and am I ready? See, if the answer is yes, in just a moment, we're going to open the service for prayer. And as we do on a regular basis, this front row is going to be open as an altar for you to come and for you to pray. If you are ready to begin taking a step in your relationship with God, come forward and confess your sins. Confess the things that have been in the way of your relationship with God and the way of him using you. Maybe it's just fear. God, I've been afraid to step out in faith. I've been afraid to do anything else. I've just been so comfortable. The thought of doing something beyond my comfort has been too much for me to bear. I confess my fear to you, and I pray you fill me with the Holy Spirit so I can know the depth of the power and love and sound-mindedness that comes from your presence. You come. You lay yourself down at his feet and you begin praying that he would empower you to be his witness and continue to seek him in the filling of his spirit until an evidence of that filling comes. In Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus said, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You see, God isn't waiting for you to become something to receive his Holy Spirit. God wants to fill you with his spirit. God wants to empower your life so you can overcome sin, do his will, and bring him glory. He's waiting for you to just give yourself to him. He wants you to, to give you the spirit. He wants to give you a gift to use to strengthen the church, to build up the church, to war against the kingdom of the devil, to bring light to those who are lost in darkness. God has an incredible plan and ministry prepared just 
for you. He is just waiting for you to get to the point where you say, I'm done living a mundane life with a mundane faith as a wanderer. I'm done living for the world. I'm done staying stuck in cold religion. I believe your word is true, and I'm ready to take up my cross and walk in faith as a witness for Jesus Christ. I'm ready today to fall on my knees and declare that I want to receive your Holy Spirit to fill me up with power to be your witness. And I believe that our God is faithful, that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Jesus said, if you seek, you're going to find. If you knock, it'll be open to you. Today is the day you begin to seek. You begin to knock on the door of heaven, and you begin to seek his presence in your life. Now, I believe as you begin to be filled with the presence of God, you will begin to experience your faith like you never had. The word is going to come alive to you in a way that it has never have. Your understanding and your relationship with God is going to change. I know because mine has. Jesus said that eternal life is given to all who believe and the spirit is given to all who ask. And today, you respond by seeking the Lord and take that next step in your spiritual journey. Let's bow our heads for prayer in this place. Father in heaven, as we're getting ready to enter to a time of response, God, this is the, po- the moment where Satan likes to rush in. He starts getting people distracted with lunch plans and other things that are going on, God. He likes to start embedding fear right now and anxiety right now as you begin to work in hearts and lives, making people feel like they can't step out and come forward. They start thinking, well, I'll, I'll do it next time. Today's just not the day. God, I just speak against all works of the enemy right now in the name of Jesus, taking authority over every spirit through the blood of Christ, and I command their silence and to be gone. Right now is your time. Fill this place with the power of your Holy Spirit, with his presence. Fill our hearts, God, and give us the courage to respond. Maybe there's someone here today and they've never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If that's you here today, you've never had a time where you said, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Become my Lord and Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and make me your witness. Today is a day where you can receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can know that you can have a relationship with the creator of heaven. Right now in this place, You can just say a prayer. You can pray right now with me, right where you are. You can say, Father in heaven, I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and shed his blood for me. I believe you raised him from the dead so that I could have life. Forgive me of my sins and fill me with your spirit that I'd be a son or a daughter of the King of Kings today. You are my Lord and Savior, now and forever. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. Someone's here today and they prayed that prayer. I don't want to call you out or embarrass you, but right now I'd just like to pray for you. If you prayed that prayer today, would you just slip your hand up and say, Joey, I prayed that prayer today. I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I asked him to be the Lord of my life. Amen. Father God, I just pray for the church. 
that there'd be no more pretending and pretense. God, that we'd have a hunger for you that never quits. That today all of us would get on our knees and seek your presence. I just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.